As we observe the holidays, what we in our American tradition refer to as Christmas, I want you to understand what this season is all about from the lips of Jesus himself. Not media or culture or tradition, but from the mouth of Christ. And so the title of my sermon today is Christmas According to the Christ. We celebrate Jesus Christ as our brother led us in prayer. His life, his ministry, and certainly his death and resurrection. He is the greatest gift the world has ever known. And he is the greatest gift that you personally and individually can know and receive. And so the passage we're going to look at tonight is out of John chapter 18. John 18. We'll begin in verses 28 and we'll read through verse 37 again. This is Christmas according to the Christ. And, and let me just say that Christmas is a Catholic word. I, I think you know Christmas means the, the mass of Jesus Christ or the mass of Christ. And while we as, as Bible-believing Christians, while we deny the Catholic mass, well, the meaning of the word has moved on. And so Christmas now refers more to a season and not to the Roman Catholic doctrine of the Mass or Christmas or any other Roman Catholic tradition. You ought to know, you ought to know that the early church did not celebrate Christmas. In fact, the only holiday on their celebratory calendar, the early church, was Easter or the Day of Resurrection. And they celebrated not only resurrection, but the week leading up to the resurrection. The vast majority of Christians today celebrate not Christmas so much as what they refer to as the Advent season. And Advent's a Latin word, Adventus, which means coming or the arrival. We celebrate, as you well know, the birth of Christ, the arrival of the Messiah, the first coming of Christ. And while we celebrate in December, I'm convinced that Christ was not born in December. Yes, absolutely right. He's, he wasn't born in December. And there's reasons for that. And you're saying, oh my goodness, first Santa, now this. Yes, uh, he was most likely born early, if not sometime mid-spring. Well, regardless of the timing of the events and uh, the terms that we employ, what is essential is that we recognize that Christmas or Advent or whatever we call it is about Jesus Christ. And more than, again, specific times of year, every day ought to be about Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be a Christian. And so we don't just celebrate the coming of Jesus in December, but our lives are worship services to the King who has come, who was and who is and who is to come. And as we remember His entrance into the world, we ought not to forget of His life and His death and resurrection. We don't just celebrate the baby Jesus in the manger, but we celebrate the fullness of who Jesus Christ is as he is now fully grown, if you will, seated at the right hand of the Father. And so, John 18, and you'll understand why this is a Christmas text when we pass over the verse that I hope your ears will perk to. And I'll isolate it. John 18. Let's begin in verse 
28. Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas to the praetorium, and it was early morning. But they themselves did not go into the praetorium, lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. Pilate then went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered and said to him, If he were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him up to you. Then Pilate said to them, You take him and judge him according to your law. Therefore the Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death, that the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spoke, signifying by what death he would die. Then Pilate entered the praetorium again, called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, Are you speaking for yourself about this, or did others tell you this concerning me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. Pilate therefore said to him, Are you a king then? Jesus answered, You say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born. And for this cause I have come into the world that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? What is truth? With the backdrop of three and a half years of ministry, with the crucifixion just around the corner, In the culmination of his passion, Jesus stands before his condemner. And he says to Pilate in verse 37, For this cause I was born and have come into the world. This is Christmas according to the Christ. Beloved, this text is a perfect Christmas text. For this cause was I born and have I come into the world? In dialogue with Pilate, Jesus gives the reason for his advent. He gives the reason for his coming, the reason for the season, if you will. And as we move through our text, let me give you an outline, a roadmap, so that you don't get lost along the way. There are three main characters in our text today. Firstly, the Jews. Secondly, Pilate. And lastly, Jesus. The Jews, Pontius Pilate, and Jesus. The Jews are in dialogue, as we read, with Pilate. And Pilate is in dialogue with Jesus. Or we might rightly say, Jesus is in dialogue with Pilate. Now let me set the stage here before we move further. Weeks before his death, Jesus, in simple straightforward words laid out how he would die, who he would be betrayed by. Jesus laid out for his disciples the events that would eventually culminate in his death. 
Mark 8.31, the Son of Man must suffer and be rejected and killed. Chapter 9, verse 31, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him. The Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and scourge him and spit upon him and kill him. Now, Jesus laid out in simple words how he was going to die. He did this, beloved, so that his disciples would know, so that we would know that he, that is Jesus, had ordained it all. That he and his Father had predetermined and predestined it all. He was in control. And what Jesus said is exactly what we see unfolding in the Gospels themselves. Jesus Christ, our Sovereign Lord, is the very one who determined what would take place each and every step along the way. And tonight our text picks up in His being delivered over to the Gentiles just as He promised. In fact, He's already been betrayed and condemned by the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling class, the chief priests and the scribes. And He is, as our text reads in verse 28, He is led from Caiaphas, who was the high priest at the time, and He is brought to Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate was the Roman-appointed governor over the land of Israel. And Jesus is led to this place called the Praetorium, literally the governor's quarters. The Jews are seeking, as you know, a death sentence. They're seeking a death sentence from the Roman magistrate, Pilate. But even now, Jesus is in complete control. And so we read the words in verse 32, that the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spoke, signifying by what death he would die. Jesus' sovereign prerogative is now demonstrated, ironically, in his being unjustly condemned by his own people and led by Caiaphas to Pilate, the Gentile. Just as Jesus said would happen. And so, again, in verse 28, we read that Jesus is led to the praetorium. He's led ultimately to Pilate. Now then, Pilate didn't live in Jerusalem. Pilate lived in a city called Caesarea on the Mediterranean coast. But during the Passover, when nationalistic and patriotic zeal was high among the Jewish people, there was a need for a strong military presence in Jerusalem in order to prevent revolt and insurrection. In other words, to keep the peace. And so Pilate took the 65-mile trek and set up shop in Jerusalem in what is called the Fortress of Antonia, northern part of the city. You can see the Antonia Fortress today. Verse 28 reads that it was early in the morning, most likely five or six in the morning. Now, what happened the night before was that Jesus stood before Caiaphas, the high priest, in the middle of the night in this sham trial. According to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 26, they tried to pin an accusation on Jesus, but nothing would stick. And so the high priest, if you remember, he got so frustrated that he simply asked Jesus point blank and said, Are you the Messiah? And Jesus answered in the affirmative. And so they named him a blasphemer. 
and so they condemned him to death. Now, we're talking about the Jews. If, if you didn't realize, we're already in the first point of our outline here, the Jews. But there was a glitch. Jesus is condemned to death, but there's a glitch. The Jews don't have the jurisdiction to kill anyone. They can't kill anyone. They don't have the power. Rome was in control, and so they were the only ones who could administer capital punishment. And so if they were going to kill Jesus, Rome would have to be involved. And it's just as Jesus predicted. These are the Jews who hated Jesus. These are the Jews who wanted Jesus dead, not because he had done anything worthy of death, as you well know. The first century Jews, their Judaism was grossly corrupted, and Jesus opposed and exposed their corruption. They hated Jesus. They hated Jesus because he was a threat to their entire system, a system where they sat in the seats of authority. Now, and let me say here a lot of context, but just by way of application. Jesus hates religious hypocrisy. If there is, just read your Bible. If there's one group of people that Jesus clearly opposes, it is the group that uses religion as a means to entertain their own corruptions, as a means, as an end really to their own wickedness. And so the Jews of Jesus' day, now, having secured a reason to condemn Jesus, blasphemy, they couldn't kill him themselves. And so they lead him to Pilate, and they want to use Pilate as the executioner. Look at verse 28. They refused themselves, that is the Jews, to go into the praetorium. Why? John tells us, they didn't go into the governor's quarters. Why? Lest they should defile themselves so that they could eat the Passover. Friends, this is religious hypocrisy of the highest order. This is hypocrisy at its finest. They wouldn't enter into the dwelling place of a Gentile lest they became ceremonially unclean while scheming all night long about how to kill an innocent man. That's religious hypocrisy at its finest. They didn't want to get unclean because they wanted to eat their Passover while they were scheming as to how they were going to kill an innocent man. They take pains to remain ceremonially clean so that they might celebrate their little Passover dinner while their hands are covered in the blood of an innocent man. Beloved, that is pure hypocrisy. The Jews had it, they had it all backwards. They had it backwards. They thought these Jewish leaders that they would be defiled by entering into the praetorium. They didn't want to be defiled by Pilate. But the truth is, if they came into the praetorium, they would have defiled Pilate. That's how wicked and corrupt these Jews were. And if there's anything Jesus hates, it is religious hypocrisy. Jesus says in Matthew 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. And friends, if we take Jesus' words seriously, then there isn't a sin 
that we can allow to have the slightest room in our lives. Friends, faithfully going to church, faithfully serving in ministry, participating in all of the Christian things, all the while stubbornly refusing to renounce a particular sin, friends, that's hypocrisy. And that is false religion. Well, why so serious, Pastor? Because a sin excused as slight tends to increase over time. And with it, one's proficiency in hypocrisy. Until one day the sinner can live in bold-face sin. Even the crucifixion of a man without the slightest blip on your record of performance religion. Hypocrisy has an amazing way of silencing our consciences to some of the ugliest sins. And so the Jews remain outside. And what happens? Verse 29, Pilate had to go out to them. And thus begins the whole judicial proceeding. Verse 29 says this, Pilate, what accusation do you bring against this man? What are the charges, he says? What has he done? And so we're introduced here to Pilate, the Roman authority in Jerusalem. And though his question is really basic, a criminal is brought before him, his question is really basic. The Jews are strangely caught off guard. Verse 30, what do you mean, Pilate? You know what's going on here. You know who this guy is. You know we want him dead. In fact, last night... You were the one who ordered a Roman guard to accompany us when we apprehended this malefactor in the Garden of Gethsemane. You yourself issued the guard. So what do you mean, Pilate, what are the charges? If he were not an evildoer, we would not have brought him to you. So why did Pilate ask that question? Pilate's playing politics. And beloved, what you need to know is that Pilate and the Jews were quite familiar with each other at this point. You see, Pilate, Pilate was a yes man. He was a, if I can use the word, a tool. He was used and abused by both the Romans and the Jews. He was on multiple occasions reprimanded by Caesar in front of his subjects. He was humiliated by Rome in front of the very people that he was supposed to be governing. For example... He once set up all of these Roman symbols in the temple at Jerusalem. And the Jews were so upset that they petitioned Pilate to remove these Roman symbols, but he refused. So what they did is they followed him all the way back to Caesarea, and they were picketing outside of his house. And Pilate got so frustrated and upset that he told all of the thousands of Jews who were gathered on his front lawn, he told them if they didn't stop picketing, if they didn't disperse and return to Jerusalem, that he was going to kill every last one of them. And then they all called his bluff. They all said, sticking out their necks, then kill us. Go ahead and kill us. Well, Rome hears down the pike that Pilate is having problems. And if you're a governor, you can't kill thousands and thousands of your own subjects. So Rome commanded Pilate to take down the images, and the Jews ultimately won the battle. And Pilate looked like a fool. 
He was, and perhaps some of you can uh, relate here, he was your incompetent boss. He had lost the respect of his employees and the trust of upper management. And so, here is Pilate interacting and dialoguing with the Jews. Now, whatever you think about Pilate, he's a smart guy. He is no fool. He knew the Jews wanted something from him. He knew who Jesus was and claimed to be. Matthew's gospel in chapter 27, Matthew tells us that Pilate knew that the Jews had handed Jesus over because of envy. Pilate, in other words, knew that this deal was rotten. And he knew exactly why the Jews wanted to kill Jesus. And what's more is that Pilate knew that the Jews simply assumed, Pilate knew that the Jews assumed that he would just submit and give in to whatever they wanted. And so Pilate is playing politics. And his bruised ego motivates this dialogue with the Jews. And Pilate is thinking, You don't assume with me. You don't use and abuse me. I am the governor after all. I am the seat and authority of Rome. I will not be used by you, but I am going to use you. And you jolly well better accept that fact. You see, friends, there's a verbal duel here. What charges do you bring against this man, he said? Not because Pilate was ignorant. No, no, he was very informed. But now that he is in the position of control, now that the Jews want him to do something for them, his bruised ego demands that they recognize his authority. So what is this all about then? And and what is he really saying to the Jews? Pilate is saying, listen, I'm I'm no one's patsy here. I don't fit into anybody's plans. You fit into my plans. He is the governor after all. And that is the message that he is trying to send to the Jews. So now, the religious hypocrisy of the Jews meets with the bruised ego of Pilate the politician. And the Jews are just as smart as Pilate is and just as driven. And they're going to outplay Pilate. Pilate has revealed his hand. And they're about to outplay Pilate. They respond. Look at verse 30. They respond. If he were not an evildoer, we would not have brought him to you. Pilate asked for charges. He asked for the accusation against this man. Do they answer the question? No, they don't. Do they submit their evidence against Jesus? No. Do they build their case against Jesus? Absolutely not. Precisely because there is no evidence against Jesus. He's innocent. There's no case. He's innocent. All the accusations are illegitimate. There is no reason, in other words, for Pilate to kill him. So what do they do? What do the Jews do? They have no case. They ground their desire on the basis of their own religious integrity. This is what they say. If he were not an evildoer, we, we would not have brought him to you. We are, after all, 
the religious leaders. We are, after all, the priests. And so Pilate then throws it back into their face. Look at verse 31. Okay, y'all are the leaders. Judge him yourself. Do what you want to do with him. Judge him by your own law. And then they respond, but uh, we, we don't have the right to execute anyone, you know. That's you, Pilate, verse 31. And can you imagine, Pilate? You don't have the right to execute anyone, huh? You need me, don't you? Thinking to himself, aha, I have them right where I want. You need me, don't you? And so they're dueling with one another, Pilate and the Jews. But verse 32 says that it's not Pilate or the Jews who are ultimately in control. For there is another dynamic governing it all. The Jews are vying for control. Pilate is vying for control. But it is Jesus who is ultimately in control. The irony of all of this is that the seemingly powerless one is absolutely powerful. The one who appears to have no control is in absolute control. The Jews and the Romans are secondary causes. God is primary. He is in control of the events leading up to the death of Jesus Christ and the death itself. And while Jesus takes upon himself the ignominy of the cross. Friends, he does not do so as a victim. But he takes the cross upon himself to secure the salvation and reconciliation and justification of all who would look to that cross. For all who would look to the person and work of Jesus Christ as the only way to be forgiven of sins before a holy God. While the Jews in their religious hypocrisy are guilty, while Pilate and Rome are guilty of political gamesmanship, God was using them to accomplish His will so that as the psalmist says in Psalm 76 verse 10, even the wrath of man will praise you. Even the wrath of man will praise you. Now there's a scene change, and so we've looked at the Jews, we've looked at Jesus, and wow, what a Christmas sermon this is, right? Well, let's get to, let's get to that verse and to the words of Christ. There's a scene change now. We're introduced to the last character. As Pilate turns into the praetorium and dialogues with Jesus, friends, this is where the rubber meets the road. Pilate is done with the Jews, Okay. The verbal swordplay and gamesmanship will go on, but he's done with the Jews temporarily. He needs to turn in and speak with the criminal, with Jesus. And this dialogue culminates in the condemnation of Jesus to death and the release of a man named Barabbas. Pilate ultimately submits to the Jews. Now before Pilate turns in to speak with Jesus. Friends, please note that this is the first time that Jesus and Pilate stand face to face, and they're alone now. 
And friends, when Jesus looked at Pilate, what he saw most likely was this short, aristocratic man about 50 years old with grain hair. He wore an expensive toga, most likely gilded sandals. And he appears, according to this dialogue, to be kind of nervous. Standing on either side of him, two guards wearing short tunics, legs apart, leaning on spears that they have just before him. Pilate asks, verse 32, look at this. He asks this question. He says, are you the king of the Jews? Now, why would he ask that question? Well, you see, that's, that's what he had been told. The Jews knew full well that Pilate would never execute Jesus on the grounds of blasphemy. He would never do it. Pilate wouldn't execute Jesus just because he, according to the Jews, blasphemed. And so Pilate asks Jesus, are you a king? Are you a king? And since Pilate asked in verse 32, what accusation do you bring against this? Since Pilate himself pulled rank on the Jews, he demanded that Jesus explain these charges the Jews, they're backpedaling. Uh, they better come up with something and something good and, and something fast, something now. Well, Pilate is sitting here asking Jesus, are you, are, you the, are you a king? Are you a king? The other gospels tell us this, that the Jews come up with a new accusation. And this is the one that we've been talking about. This man claims to be king. That was their accusation. And that was a smart move by the Jews. Because if there was one thing about Pilate which he was notoriously sensitive about, it was insurrection. Any political threat to Roman power, especially during the Passover feast, where hundreds if not thousands of Jews who are in Jerusalem on pilgrimage could potentially revolt, that's a dangerous situation. And the Jews, they knew, this man claims to be king. He, in other words, opposes Rome. He is an insurrectionist, a revolutionary. He opposes Caesar by claiming to be king. And Pilate then is no dummy. He scratches his head and he's thinking, there's no way this guy is an insurrectionist. There's no way that this guy is leading a rebellion against Rome. If he was, then the Jews, first off, would never have handed him over to me because they hate us anyway. So why would they hand over someone who opposed their enemies, Rome? Pilate's not a dummy. And so if Jesus really was an insurrectionist, the one thing that the Jews would most certainly never have done is delivered him over to Pilate. And so Pilate's no fool. They are not pulling the wool over his eyes. Finally, by the time he turns to look into and speak with Jesus, Pilate, he's, a, he's, he's kind of surprised. He turns in and he sees Jesus and he goes, he's caught off guard. You, you're a king. And he's standing before this simple, plain-looking Jewish man with disheveled hair, with a puffy eye, with a bloody lips, and perhaps a broken nose. His garments are spotted with his own blood, and Pilate is surprised at how utterly unimpressive Jesus was. And so the text reads, You? You're the king of the Jews? And perhaps the guards smirked when they heard that question. 
And then Jesus responds, Are you speaking for yourself about this? Or did others tell you concerning me? Pilate, you know I'm not an insurrectionist. Why are you asking me if I'm a king? Pilate, are you really asking or did someone put you up to this? Do you really want to know whether I'm a king or not? And I want you to see what Jesus is doing here. The tables turn. Listen, if you ever want to win an argument, then start asking the questions. Jesus begins to question Pilate and the tables turn. Jesus becomes the interrogator and the questioner. Pilate, sensing this interrogation, Pilate, this prodding from Jesus, Pilate is repelled instantly. He says, I'm not a Jew. Am I a Jew? Do I look like a Jew? Your own people, your own chief priests handed you over to me. What is it that you have done? I have no interest in these Jewish matters, says Pilate. And I know this, you're no revolutionary. You're not the king of the Jews, or they would have never handed you over in the first place. What then, Pilate's saying, what then is the real issue? Now, it is right here that Jesus sets forward the features of his kingdom. Firstly, God is the author of this kingdom. Verse 36, he states it in the negative. Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. The idea here is that his kingdom is not worldly. It is not out of this world. It is not sourced in this world's order. It does not derive its authority from this fallen world. And this is most plainly demonstrated by the fact that my servants don't fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. And you know as well as I know, Pilate, that I have not resisted arrest or even condemnation. In fact, Jesus said to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. My kingdom is not of this world. It's not from this place. Jesus is not saying that his kingdom is not in the world or that his kingdom is not active in this world or that his followers have nothing to do with this world. When Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world, he is talking about the origination of it. And Pilate is a smart guy. Pilate knows. Before I was a Christian, I met these well-intentioned Christians and I, I knew what they were doing. Okay? Be all buddy-buddy with me. Friend me up, huh? Conversations that for some reason keep going back to this Jesus figure. Okay. Pilate is no dummy. He's a smart guy. He knows what Jesus is saying. He knows that Jesus is saying that the author of the kingdom, the ruler of the kingdom, is God himself. God is the author of Jesus' kingdom. It is the kingdom of God that Christ is speaking of. But Pilate don't want to go there. He's the guy who doesn't want to be evangelized. And so Pilate makes this weak attempt at pulling things back 
So you are a king then. That's what he says. So, uh, so you do have a kingdom, so I guess you are a king. But Jesus responds by pushing Pilate's vision heavenward again. He says, you say rightly that I am a king. You say rightly, and here it is, beloved. Here is what Christmas is all about. Straight from the lips of Jesus. You say rightly that I am a king, and verse 37, for this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world. For what reason? For what cause? Friends, the king brings his kingdom, his king dominion. The domain of and the reign of and the dominion of the king. It is otherworldly. It is heavenly. It is sourced in God and comes from God, not man. It is not man-made religion. It is not of this world. What is its cause? What is its reason? So that, Jesus says, this is why I've come. I've come here, Pilate. I am in control, Pilate. I am asking the questions. I have come to bear witness to this kingdom, to bear witness to the truth. And who is the truth in the Gospel of John? It is Jesus who is the truth, the life, and the way. Jesus Christ is the most Christ-centered preacher that ever preached. Jesus Christ is pointing his condemner back to himself. I have come to bring my kingdom, Pilate. I have come to proclaim the truth to you, Pilate. Jesus has come to reveal God to us. He has come to be a witness of God for us. He has come to offer God's salvation and kingdom to us. And so do you know what that means? that we are in great need of this kingdom, to hear the truth. Jesus came to proclaim the truth. That's what Christmas is all about. It's an opportunity for us to proclaim the truth to our family and to our friends. And they might stand before you, accusing you, laughing at you. That's the king? Really? But he came for the likes of us to reveal the truth of God. Everyone who is of the truth, Jesus says, hears my voice. And friends, I want you to see how gracious Jesus is being to Pilate here. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate, are you listening? Jesus tells Pilate everything he needs to know. And you can hear, you can hear in the words of Jesus. Jesus calling out to the sinner. Friends, this is amazing because the man who is in the dock, the man who is standing condemned, invites his executioner to be his disciple. Come and follow me. Pilate, listen to me. Pilate, embrace me. 
Pilate, believe me. Pilate, follow me. Everyone on the side of the truth listens to me. Do you want the truth? Pilate is offered an opportunity to inherit eternal life. Eternity was looking at Pilate square in the nose. That's what Christmas is about. The Christ stands before all of us with an opportunity for eternity. And non-Christian, if you're in this room, he stands before you and looks you right in the nose. Will you hear his voice? That's why he came, you see. That's why he came. So that you might hear the truth and embrace the truth and follow him. That is what Christmas, according to the Christ, is all about. But we know what Pilate's response is. And you can hear the cynicism and the disgust and the contempt and ultimately the despair in Pilate's response. He says this. He says, what is the truth? Veritas, what is, what is the truth? Sounds like a postmodern, doesn't it? Sounds like someone who has denied truth altogether. The spirit of our age sounds much the same. The spirit of our age says that there is no truth. There is no hope. And there's only madness and chaos then. Because the only thing that we're left with at the end of the day, if there's no such thing as truth, is ourselves. And that's frightening. And so this has to be one of the saddest stories in the Bible. To be at arm's length from the truth, from Christ, and then to walk away from Him. Friends, that's tragic. Now let me just say here by way of application, how about you? That's a simple application. How about you? Do you know the truth? Do you want to know God? Not second-handedly, but intimately and personally, and truly, I mean really know Him, then you, then you must look to and listen to Jesus Christ. That's what God said at the baptism and at the transfiguration. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Heed ye Him. Listen to Him. You must come to the King if you be, want to be part of His kingdom. A kingdom that comes from God and that is not of this world. A kingdom that brings you to God. Would you turn with me to the Gospel of John in the beginning? Chapter 1. Oh, I love... I love this expression in verse 12, but let's begin in verse 10. He was referring to Jesus in one of the greatest introductions that's ever been written in the Gospel of John here, referring to Jesus, He was in the world, and the world was made through Him, and the world did not know Him. He came to His own, and His own did not receive Him. And here it is. But as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. Do not keep him at arm's length, only to walk away from him. What is the truth, Pilate asked? 
Jesus Christ is the truth, the life and the only way. Friends, are we on the side of truth? We have opportunities this Christmas season. You have opportunities to preach. Are you on the side of the truth? Have you yourself responded like a Christian, like one who has been given the right to become a child of God, or perhaps like Pilate? I pray that our response would be as fitting the children of God. Let's pray together. Lord, we see that even bloodied and bruised and beaten, standing before your condemner, yet you preached the gospel. You preached yourself, the king and the kingdom, the truth, the life and the way, looking at the very one who delivered you over to death, offering him eternal life. Thank you, Lord. I pray that we would not respond in a hopeless and well, pitiful way, even as Pilate did, but in a way that embraces you and trusts in you who is the truth. I pray that especially this season and for the rest of our lives that we would be bold, even as bold as you were, to preach salvation to those who rejected and would continue to reject. Lord, thank you. We come as the faithful, joyful and triumphant, to worship and honor and praise you. Thank you in Jesus' name we pray.